0: Naturally smart people, could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? What a great start to our new season. Henry David Thoreau's quote uh, arose from a discussion that you'll listen to in a few minutes' time between Megan Sequeeneke, Fiona Mackenzie, and myself, um, which was recorded earlier in two thousand and eighteen. And during that conversation, we explore some of the issues that they're interested in, in regard to how human beings establish and develop and attempt to influence and change the systems that they design. And one of the aspects of that that particularly interests me is the theme that we're going to pursue throughout this season, which is a theme of empathy, whether it's empathy for perspectives other than one's own, so listening and looking through the eyes of another for an instant, or whether it's possible to develop empathy through natural systems, through the ability to be able to connect in various ways to the beyond human world. And so those two elements of conversation come up in this discussion, but are also the thread, if you like, that holds together the new season. Um, we will be releasing programs as and when, as usual, it is not really a fixed fixed uh, agenda in the naturally smart people program uh, to have a monthly or a weekly re- release. It just depends really on the serendipitous nature of the meetings that I have or my friends have that send me various video files and audio files. So bear with us on that. Uh, we will try and make it more systematic but who knows. Um. Hope you enjoy the conversation, there will be a little bit of information at the end with regards to connections and transcripts and things which we are beginning to do in this new season and look forward to feedback. Uh, Send it through to me, uh, Paul at Foundation Rocks and if you wish to put a review please onto iTunes because it helps us to get the message out that we are back online and back working again. So, good to be back, hope you enjoy today and uh, thanks for coming.
1: Will you just say the question again, please? How yeah. might we approach transformational change? This
0: was your question, Megs, I think. How might we approach transformational change for complex challenges in the future? It seemed to me to be quite an interesting thread to explore for this sort of conversation. And we can come back to it as we go through, maybe, and just pick it up again. But this idea of, uh, the, you know, to me, there's some bits in it, there's an approach element. There's the transformational element. There's a change element. There's the idea of complex challenge, and there's the idea of futures. You know, and there's this whole.
2: It was a pretty, pretty packed up question. I'm really happy to talk <laughs> about where this came from and, and some yeah. of the, where the conversation got to. And I don't think, I don't think anyone probably can get to an answer on it. But yeah. uh, for me, I think the, the real question I've been grappling with is, how do you know when you've achieved transformation? you know, we we all seek to achieve change and potentially create new systems out of old systems. But how do you know, particularly when it's often really hard to measure impact and particularly system-wide impact to apply any sort of, you know, causality to it and say, we actually did that? Um, I think for me, it was really just a question of, am I kidding myself? Like, are we we having any impact at all? Um, And also, am I getting lost in method? I think was the other thing for me was really wanting to check that I was up to date and really across how other people are thinking about transformation. But then also for me, I think complexity goes with transformation in the sense that a lot of the systems we deal with by their very nature are complex and adaptive. So therefore there is no right answer. So (laughs) it's this eternal challenge of if it's constantly adapting, how do you even know she transformed it? And I think do you know one of the things that it really got me reading uh, – sorry, thinking on this was – well, and reading on it too was I've been reading some um, – a few history books lately around different, you know, sort of – I love the history books that are sort of 500 years or 1,000 years of history. And you see all these events and, and cycles and empires and, you know, economic history and all sorts of things. And you're like, how much of that is just – gonna happen anyway you know um so for me it was a very existential question that i really <laughs> wanted advice on that's where it came from for me
0: nice nice And boys, how about you meg so where, where was the sort of thread of this from your point of view where did it originate
1: well uh, having been obliged i mean and in hindsight it was a good thing to document my own experience of working with transformational change over the last 20 years, um, it forced me to really um, crystallise – and it is the impact question as well – it forced me to crystallise what is at the heart of transformational change. Um, And after my experience of working in corporate Australia, where everyone talks about transformational change and there is none, nor is there actually an intention to have any. I became quite cynical, to be honest, during that time in Australia about whether systems-wide change was possible, and Fiona knows it was only really when I met up with Fiona and Ralph and started really exploring both processes, methodologies, and potential impact across the country that I started, it, it reawakened my interest in the potential of systems-wide change. Um, but the writing process just forced me to look again at relationship. Mm. And Fiona knows the anthropologist who was with us at the mm. conference last year, who reminded us that the, the unit of analysis in systemic change is always the is always a relationship. It's not the individual. Mm. <clears throat> so that that really looking. And and I and I suppose the journey for me has been that I still believe that transformational change is possible. Um, I think it's not about product; it's about process, which why which is why it makes um, measuring impact so difficult. And I don't think. I th- and I think when we measure impact, we tend to look at product. And actually, the transformational piece is the relational piece at multiple levels. Mm-hmm. And. And so, what, what's playing with my mind at the moment is that GIZ has asked me to work with them on re- totally reviewing their monitoring and evaluation. G-
0: GIZ, uh,
1: just um, the German Development Bank, the people that okay, actually okay. funded Well Wellbeing Economies Lab.
0: Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah.
1: And so, the Global Leadership Academy is saying exactly to Fiona's point: How do we know we've had impact? We we seek through deep dialogue work and deep social process work to bring about transformational change. And I, I mean, so my belief in the power of dialogue and conversation um, to bring about transformational change is actually pretty profound. But then we tend to look at measuring impact in terms of product. Mm. And, and for me, that's And and it comes down to, and I'm sorry, I'm really waffling. I probably need another coffee. But um, it really comes to me, the relationship between structure and agency. I'm deeply fascinated by human agency. So to bring that futures element in again, um, Mm. how we actually can socially construct different kinds of futures together. And that writing process reminded me of how I've done that, and I don't mean by that in an egotistical sense, I've done it, but how through working with deep social processes over a long period of time, it had actually had transformative impact, both at the individual, personal level, and in very different contexts, so from higher education, through corporate, through not-for-profit, through faith-based organizations. And so <clears throat> I think I remain hopeful
0: despite historical <laughs> evidence to the country. Despite historical cynicism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, and
1: that was, that was No, no, that's
0: very useful because I think the, the, there's a couple of sort of pre-runners I suppose in terms of ideas that I was thinking around what you're saying there that might help to sketch this out a bit more and it's partly just to help me make sense of this question as much as you to explain what happened when you had the gathering in the summer last year but am I right in thinking then that with this notion of relationship we're automatically assuming that the the transformation that might be happening is is as much social as it is technical so it's in people's individual ways of perceiving reality and relationship that the energy goes the, the the efforts go to, um, and I suppose the question I've got behind that is then, is it is that not running completely counter to the current ways in which we define self? You know, isn't there an existential crisis evident in just about every aspect of human society at the moment, which is around this subjective nature of human experience? So so this idea of self is is really. Problematic now, in the context of these growing awarenesses of, of, of interrelation, interconnections, interrelationships and that it creates a very profound tension. And, and And I think that's possibly where the 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 cynicism or the 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 just the sheer despair of it could possibly be felt, because it's almost like two worlds crashing together. Um, yeah
2: yeah absolutely I think there's a and that's one of the, the beautiful things I like when you when we think about futures is that it's okay to call out paradoxes and I think in this case the there is that the, the sort of and, and that hyper individualism and all sorts of things that are happening as well but I think for me and and part of this is how do you tell the story of what it mean, what relationships mean in a professional context I think we can buy it we buy what relationships mean in a personal context um i think in a in a professional context we seem to somehow assume that we left them at home um and i think that often the way i explain it is that the best innovations are in relationships and i think that just goes back to the nature of a system which is it's defined by its interactions. so i always imagine if you can reweave the web imagine what you can create and how do we um do that in a way that's really different and interesting and often that's where things around you know working across difference become so magical when you can do that and you're sort of reweaving different webs but I I agree I think it's um there's a clash of paradigms there's a clash of scales there's a clash of maybe cause and effect but I think you know and this is one of the beautiful things that came out of the workshop uh we had was this sense that I, I felt like there's a lot that happens before say a convene, a, you convene a process with participants. So much happens before that, even just creating the relationships around those that wish to convene mm-hmm. um, and potentially the funders and all these other things. And often it, it's just, um, assumed that that's a given or the context for that is also set and I think sometimes the best work's done before anyone steps in a room in that sense um, and so to really hear from others their experiences in how they create the authorizing environment how they really sort of invite in the other um, and do all that it was really nice to have other people in the room who valued that and could also articulate it probably in a way much better than I can, Um, and and to think, okay, that's not, we're not crazy, that is actually really
0: important. Mm, mm. Alexander Crawford was on our list of people I was speaking to a couple of weeks ago on this program, and um, Alex's work is is not dissimilar to this. It's creating the conditions and bringing people together and working out ways in which we might um, gather I suppose is the word, successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, and and so, so, what you're saying to me, I think, is that this this whole idea of the, the facilitation processes are under, undervalued, but need to be having far more attention paid to them. Is that right? Absolutely.
2: And I, I think I always push back on when you hear people describe something as a talk fest. <laughs> um, as though that's a bad thing and it's like if you can create the context where people have wonderful conversations, that's fantastic mm-hmm. and usually that's really rare. Um, you don't walk out of most events or meetings with agendas feeling like you've had a great conversation. So, yeah, I agree. I think there's something around the facilitation but this comes to another point which I know Megan strongly agrees on as well which is that um, the method is secondary and, um, to my point, I think that it's not about perfect methods or perfect facilitators or self-righteous conversations. It's about real conversations and how do you bring your real self into those conversations? Which often, you know, we all wear we all wear masks at work, really. And I, and so I talk about work in the sense that often these conversations are in we're coming in a context of it's not about our community um, or something that's local. Often it's it's something that's quite um, you know, it could be national or some sort of um, context where we we are wearing a professional hat as well and so we constrain ourselves.
0: That interests me, Fiona. I mean, I wonder whether the distinction between work and play or work and other life, um, I I sort of get why you focus on it, but I also wonder whether it actually impedes the ability of us to take it forward and, and take the idea forward. You know, this... It seems to me that the, the the distinction between work and non-work is fundamentally an industrial construction. You know, it's, it's come from an age of modern en- enterprise and industrialization. And actually, in environments where that distinction's less evident, the flow is Absolutely. much easier. So we we bring yeah.
2: we bring play back in. So I've had. <clears throat> In some of our processes, I've had um, senior, um, very senior business and government leaders, and I pull out crayons, you know, or we do Lego smart play or whatever it is, and they're just like, oh, my God, but it's it's this idea of um, it's okay to be creative and to play, and actually they get they usually end up loving it. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. just, for me, I'm trying to challenge and break down, as you say, that distinction, and also this sense that in order to get good ideas, we have to be really boring.
0: you know it just doesn't follow and also i guess you know what you said about history You know, in the context of a thousand years of history we do tend to take ourselves a bit too seriously you Mm. know and maybe that's part of the mix that there's something about doing getting rid of that ego and busting away from the fact that we think we can change everything and make it somehow glorious, you know? Maybe this is how it is, and we have to explore it differently to begin to construct other narratives. Sorry, Meg, go ahead.
1: In a whole (coughs) lot of dualisms, you know, as as Fiona says, at least when one is thinking into a future orientation, you can live with paradox. But, I mean, we tend to separate the social and the technical. We Mm. tend to separate work, non-work. We (laughs) separate individual from the collective. if, if you look at all the hashtag me too we men and make victims of women as though this is actually going to re- enable a creative systemic response it seems to be that is a natural tendency and and a lot of this work is actually helping people work out of those binaries mm, mm, mm. Um, and and I and I think it's a The, con- the convening, the gathering, um, you know, if I think about the We Africa Lab, if I think about what Fiona and I did with the workshop, it's helping people bring the deeply personal in a way that is not about individual and ego, mm-hmm. but enables the personal. Because at the moment you depersonalise and make it systemic, once again, it shifts the focus somewhere else. Mm. And then the real inspiration that is required to overcome these binaries, so that they're not an issue, it can't happen. So people are inclined to go, well, if we're talking about ecosystemic, then we've got to be systemic. We can't, we, we leave the personal out. Mm. And it's actually how you flourish the personal mm. in the context of the whole that is the question, because it's only that eco. And I suppose I've learned a lot from working in faith-based places where the values around an ecological worldview are seen to be of value. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. people go, "My goodness, we're not practicing what we preach. We say that you know we we want an ecological uh, we want to flourish social and human ecology. But they don't know what that means. they don't, they they don't know how to do it. Um, yeah. So once again, I'm waffling a bit, but I, I do think that 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 how we bring personal and collective together, and the role of playfulness, um, and 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 yeah, bringing people to to be fully integrated, because otherwise they bring their serious head, which mm. is analytical and and head based. Mm. And there's no way that they can, they think the heart-based stuff is just some fluffy nonsense.
0: Mm.
1: And until you give them an experience of integration at a personal level and a collective level, they can't make the shifts that transformational Mm. change is asking for.
0: Is that where the notion of future is also problematic? In what sense, Paul? I suppose in the sense that we can disassociate ourselves from the future as much as associate ourselves to it because it's not happening yet and so you can throw into that things which are not um which are things which you might think are never going to be solved or never going to be resolved and 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 but you can do it in such a way as it it, it excuses the actions of the present and i wonder whether the whether that idea of time where we push away the problem to the next generation or we push away the issue down the, down the road because it's simply too difficult for us to deal with at the moment is our, is our sort of subconscious excuse for not tackling the, the, the immediate present in the ways that you're describing. Because if you, if you were to consider the future as an emotional thing rather than a structure or technical thing, then you know the emotional future is clearly going to be one of the way one of the most important challenges for humanity as we move towards this you know, ecocide and all of these various other things that are happening around us. That that will have a quantifiable effect on our well-being. And, and, and it will be emotional as much as it will be technical in terms of the responses that we need to make to it. Now, it, it seems to me that you know, a lot of the ways in which, for example, and I'm babbling on here a bit, but, for example, the ways in which we are currently trying to tackle issues around ecological crisis, most of the ways in which we're doing that are drawing down the, mod, the, the, the science, quite rightly perhaps, and attempting to put rational arguments to it and i don't know whether the rational arguments actually help because it it, it 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 enables people to say oh yeah but that's opinion even when the the, you know, the science is clear it's opinion it or it you know or it's it's um it might be like that in the future but we don't know yet however if you start to say well look what about if you have kids and your kids can't eat and if you you start know, you start playing into the what about if you never heard a cuckoo sing again in the spring? What about if you find that it snows in June? Or when these things start to play differently in our sort of psychic in quite deep, deep ways? And I wonder whether whether our uh, preoccupation with the future actually in, is, is our excuse in the modern world to to avoid the present and actually avoid tackling these things that you're describing. I think
1: the
2: the work there's the future just in a general sense of um something to happen and sort of put off then there's the futures in terms of how we have conversation about what's possible the really beautiful thing about scenario conversations so futures where you're actually trying to create stories is that it really does depend on the story we can hear stories today that are in from different countries, cultures, or contexts, and we can just disassociate ourselves from them as well. Mm. And the really uh, interesting thing about the working with futures is that I find it really interesting in the groups that I've led that the it's often easy to imagine the collapse scenario, the crisis scenario. It's quite easy to imagine mm. hyper growth or business as usual, and it's quite easy to imagine just a, a restrained version of the current future. What is really, really hard to imagine is a transformative scenario. And a transformative scenario is one in which you flip on its head or imagine a genuine transformation in values and behaviour. So it's not a technical future. It's how might we live differently? How might we behave differently? And how do we construct that scenario? And I think it's a hard thing to do, but when you put the work in and you do it, it's a really powerful story and it is one of what's possible and I, I really believe that it ties really nicely into conversations where we talk about, you don't f- sort of try and fix the old system, you build the new one. Um, but but in order to do that, you have to have some sense of what does that new one look like? And it's just a really, um, you know, it, it's a powerful way of actually engaging that doesn't just encourage us to think it's too hard.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: I I really, I think that's very true, Fiona, and it's not, you're not asking people to do pie in the sky stuff either, because once you've done the kind of convening and gathering work that you talk about, when people get real and build a narrative together around what's possible, um, I I think that some very, uh, I do think that, that some very concrete things come out of it. If I think about Valmai's work, for example, in the disability sector in Australia, and using transformative scenarios as a, around powerful questions, um, and the impact that that had on the disability sector in Australia was huge, because it's helping people lose their certainties. You know, mm. when you've got a you, you, when you're in the present and there's been an, an historical trajectory and you go, well, it can't be anything other than what it is. It is what it is, and I can't imagine it in any way different. Mm-hmm. When you create the conditions for those certainties to become loosened and the emotional dimension, or the feeling dimension of that is huge, and mm-hmm. then able then to have the authentic conversations that bring all of themselves, the emotional self, the analytical self, so that science information is a part of it. But the future I mentioned also fully comes in. And
2: what's really fascinating, one one process that I ran, the I know the people that were behind sort of the, the, the supporting the process and stakeholders were very nervous that it was going to turn into a battle about what the future should look like and the participants turned up ready to fight you could see it they were ready to fight for their turf but as soon as they realized that wasn't what this was about it was just magical like they um it, it does mean you can suddenly park a lot of the the old baggage and, and think about well what's this is my chance to think about what could be a a better um outcome but also you do get to be your best self so it does come back to that living your values and you know there's so much in it that it's just. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying futures and future and transforming scenarios always works, but um, I think there's something, for me, really powerful in equipping people to think and paint a vision for the future and have a North Star. And I think it's really sad that uh, we don't have that in so many instances at a national or other level, anyone braving just to even paint a vision of what the future should look like in any way that's sort of entering national
0: conversations and I think that is a real shame. Mm-hmm. And is that, in your experience, is that because people are scared to put their neck above the parapet and be publicly, you know, captured on saying things which in a sense are speculative at a time which loves certainty, says Megan's suggesting? Or is it because we simply lack the, you know, the imaginative skill sets to do it? So when, you, when you're when you facilitating these types of events, then that's providing a structure, a, a context, and a, a curating an environment, if you like, where people can have those conversations, but it's few and far between that you see those sorts of things happening. Or is it, is it bugs? I think, it's,
2: I think it, it's not the lack of imagination. I think it is the frameworks and the whole point of... Imagining futures is it's not a prediction of what is going to happen. Hmm. And a lot yeah. of people think that's yeah. what it is yeah. um, it, It's about what's plausible, but also what's desirable. So both of those are at no point ever Wrong, you know, it's not this is what could happen and this is what I would prefer to see happen That conversation is really different. to going. This is what I think will happen. Hmm. And so I don't have much time for And I, I don't find it that useful a lot of the predictive futurist um conversations that worry about robots or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. And I think it's
0: mm-hmm.
2: um and I th- I think there's something in maybe our literacy about how we have these conversations that's just needs building up. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know and Fiona, i think you know, about the, the workshop. workshop. Um we, you, you developed that, so Paul, we asked people to come in with, and they created a narrative around something, um, a, an important uh, experience, event for them. Mm. It was a narrative structure that you gave them, Fiona. It was a storyline that you asked them to bring. Mm. And, and people, yeah, I, I must admit that workshop experience was, a, was an awesome one. And Fiona and I made stuff up
0: then as we went along. <laughs> but that's the nature of stories, isn't it? You can then busk off of the back of someone else's story. And it, 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 it seems to me, I, I, I get that entirely. The, the process that that could bring with it is incredibly powerful because it's sort of innately in us anyway. We're all storytellers, you know, sit on a bus or go into a pub or sit in a cafe and as soon as you start talking to someone, we're storytelling. So, so it's so embedded that we don't have to worry too much about technically how to do that. We just need to create the the stimulus to make it work, I suppose, and the environments to make it work. And that, that's what intrigues me about the question. You know, the question that you posed us. So, the, we've been exploring some of those, some of the the approaches. Um, we've been we've been thinking about some of the ways in which story can perhaps facilitate the understanding of the transformations that could come and um, I suppose the, the, the other bit of the question that I'd like us to just dwell on a little bit are what are these complex challenges what, how do you visualize those how do you how do you express those I and mean, if they're not if they're not technical or well what are they I mean maybe that's the question <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by that
2: complex challenges basically means that they're no, they have no right answer. So in the sense that, say for example, uh, an example is housing. So how do we have um, affordable housing, which is a big issue I know in the UK as well as in Australia for a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. The reason it's complex is that there's so many ways that could be done. Um, It can impact on social, you know, it's the economic system. It can link into taxes. There's no single, no one has the full picture of what the housing system looks like. No portfolio in government, no expert can cover off every aspect of that. And so it really is a situation where the complexity comes from the degree of I guess you call it sectors or places that it touches but also the fact that it requires what I would call adaptive solutions so a complicated challenge would be something like I need to build a rocket to get to the moon okay that's fine you can pull some experts in to do that and you'll get a technical answer and let's go do that Um, you know a, a simple challenge might be um, I need to cook a cake, and okay, there's a recipe book for that. Um, and often in chaos, we talk about command and control. Often the response required, there is very much a heavy control response to restore order, blah, blah, blah. But in complex challenges, but a part of it is diagnosing. Are we talking a complex challenge? And if we are really accepting, firstly, being having the humility to realise we're not going to know the answer, there is no right answer, and that whatever answer we come up with will be out of date because it's a self-organising system so complex systems an example might be the food system globally um or uh, you know i walk i walk into a supermarket here and buy my um cereal in the morning but i have no oversight of you know where the grains were produced where it was packaged what was happening and nor does anyone else on that chain you know um there's all pieces of it so it's one of these amazing things that um we find in nature as well as in in society uh so I think for me, it's really just recognising that when it comes to a system, you you can't boil the ocean, but you can understand all these elements and things and then think about where's a really impactful place to intervene and and really think about the interactions. And the other beautiful part of it is that you can go, well, let's just not go for a technical solution or let's let's not just take a traditional approach to a system, which is often what are the organisational structures we should deal with? Let's have regulation. Let's expect government to fix it. Um, you know, let's tap into that. In a systems context, we really look at, well, if, if what we're seeing happening is the tip of the iceberg, how do we dig deeper into the fact that it goes down into our behaviors, our paradigms, our mental models, which influences the way we interact as individuals, the way we interact as organizations, how policy is set, power processes and dynamics, like there's so much to flesh out in that space. And then once you've done all that and you've started peeling all those onions, you can start thinking about, well, actually, What's really ringing true here is um, the most, for example, maybe in the context of housing and some work I did on that, there really was a deep down sense that renters are not as worthwhile as homeowners. That is a really deeply seated belief in Australia Mm -hmm. and it sits under so much of how we approach um, tenancy law, how we value or don't value the housing market but even the way we do or don't value um, affordable housing, or all these things, and it was just like, wow, there's this really deep-seated cultural belief, um, and, and set of assumptions, and also some misconceptions around housing affordability for people who are trying to buy a home versus affording housing, affordable housing for people who never own a home. Um, you know, so just some really deep things that you went, okay, unless we start looking at that level of detail, tinkering around the edges up here at. Um, a rental assistance of an extra $20 a
0: week is not going to fix things. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I answered your
2: question, but I've just sort of riffed off your question, I think.
0: As you were talking, it struck me, one of the things that, that would apply very interestingly to would be the current dilemma we face with Brexit. You know, we have this complex problem. What's fascinating is the way in which the political groupings are attempting to now resolve that and i'm not so sure given what you're saying that what they've what can be done is actually a a resolvable problem it's something Mm -hmm. that is like you say, it's going to continually evolve and to have it nailed down and written in a script to say this is what brexit means seems to me to be almost an impossibility given the nature of the beast that we've created so the, the 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 reconceptualization around a whole other way of thinking about the relationship starts to become quite an interesting way of dealing with it because it moves it from an economic to a social to a cultural to a a, a future visualization of a, of a relationship between different nation states but also the people that live in them and those places as environments and there's a different way in which this could be approached but unfortunately the mechanism that's been adopted is almost like so arcane it simply cannot deal with the current arrangement. What you're describing to me sounds much, much more likely to be a solution to that, or at least a, a more positive response to that type of complex challenge. Yeah. So.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting, and it is often, um, and it can sound, it can seem obvious initially, but it's often counterintuitive to start with, but. Something like that, which is driven so deeply by fear of the future, yeah. and for a whole set of reasons why people did that, you can't wish that away. You know that that is a whole other thing that has to get dealt with, and whatever you do with Brexit is irrelevant in that context of um, people are genuinely scared for the future of their country, and it's 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 this whole other set of things to unpack there. But I think what often the approach we try and take is that. The only way you can work in a in a complex system and dealing with complex challenges is by learning. Learning is the only way. and so rather than solving problems, you learn about them and to learn about them, it's you make clear your assumptions um, about what you think maybe you know your hypotheses about might might be true. and then it's the question of well, how would you test them? And then everything you do is an experiment in that context. so it would be a waste of effort and and foolhardy to just pick one one solution in that context because 99 chance it's wrong so you might pick a portfolio of solutions you might set up a whole set of assumptions and it's not whether the solution's right or wrong it's what do you how quickly can you learn how fast can you learn around this complex challenge because the faster you learn the quicker you can keep adapting because the system's going to keep adapting And so it's really about upgrading our ability to sense, understand, and respond to a system that is where we where success comes from. It's not from picking a plan, making a plan, or picking a solution up front. And I use the example; uh, it's actually a military example, but um, they actually have within the military, surprisingly or not, um, a whole adaptive campaigning uh, philosophy. Which uh, originally, and I, I could be totally mashing up the theory around this, but my understanding is that. It even informs things like the original fighter jets, which were built on the person who survives is that who can change course most quickly. So it wasn't about the biggest plane with the biggest weapons. It was about the most agile plane. Mm. Um, And in their context of um, the unknowns that the military has to deal with, there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of uncertainty. Their challenge is how quickly can they create certainty or can they adapt quicker than the other person? Um, And that's what they deal with. It's not about predicting, you know, outcomes all the way. It's about how do you respond? And I was just, how do you respond? And I just feel like within government, within society, we just haven't updated our paradigms, our processes to actually be close to agile in any of these things. We're just so clunky. (laughs) Well, I guess, you know,
0: that's where my persistent thing I go and rant on about every week in this program is the industrial mind, the the failure of the industrial Mm -hmm. mind and the the blindingly obvious that nature can do this. Nature's adapted throughout millennia and we just have to watch it and be mentored from it but for whatever reason we've chosen channels which do not as yet take that on board as a serious way of thinking about the the reality that we exist within so fiona you had you had another thing you wanted to say on that point yeah
2: About... well it was just a, it was just around our ability to think differently and how hard it is to do that and how reliant our whole global sort of system and how we organize is reliant as you say on a, on a single mindset in some ways and mm-hmm. so i just wanted to talk to the idea of we talk about artificial intelligence and the idea of being able to potentially cater to, uh, to basically disaggregate information to whatever the individual needs through artificial intelligence. And so the example I would give is, is thinking about how we organize a school. And at the moment we organize it by age, which is like a massively inefficient method. And we assume everyone in the room has to be studying the exact same subject because that's as much as we can manage. Mm. And so many of our administrative systems are organised in really simple ways like that. And so I think it's just this idea of, for me, thinking through, well, if we really do want to tackle complex challenges, we also need to think really creatively about how do we also um, change how we work and not just assume it's about protecting a particular mode of decision-making or other. So. I'm just throwing it out there that it, there is still a lot of work to be done. I think in in how we, in the approaches that we use, in the mental models we use, and, and I think that's going to be a big cultural shift that's going to take decades.
0: That is one of the really significant changes, isn't it? That that you can sort of sense is already happening in tiny little microcosms of activity, but is not yet systemically understood. Um, so, yeah, the debate around, you know, what is a classroom, what is a school, you know, is ra- rampant around the planet. Nothing really is changing because we haven't yet been able to um, consider the, the the possibility that we could learn outside of a school. <laughs> it's, it's in, it was evident yesterday, actually, in the news when there was a news item and, of a woman who's just gone to Cambridge University and she was... Um, from a family that was a survivalist family in the United States, and they'd never these the kids had grown up in in the in the middle of the wilderness, and uh, the the reporter that was or the interviewer on this program on lunchtime news in in the UK was incredulous that this this girl could possibly have learnt without having gone through an education system. You know, she's sort of basically saying, well, how did you learn to read? How did you learn to? do all these things that you're now doing at Cambridge and she said well you know I learned to walk I learned to speak I learned to feed myself you know I just learned to read it's not that hard it's just another part of being and we've applied an institutional model to things which could be quite differently created I think and yet, and we're so wedded to them perhaps we're Well, yes. This is where this is where the role of what you're this is where what you're doing I think becomes so interesting because it it actually creates this space for these conversations to begin to be explored and and adopted into daily life you know um, as Megan said earlier you know we see the we see the concrete effect of these types of things into into the workplaces that the people in, that encounter the workshops and the the the, the sessions um have as a result of that experience and the the sad thing is it's not widespread you know, it's, most of the time we go to conferences and hear keynote speakers who are not haven't got a note to play a key in if they haven't if they tried you know <laughs> um,
1: and you know it's interesting so a recent example for me um around this being systemic piece um, a bunch that I've worked with over a couple of years <clears throat> in Africa around, and it started, the project started with we need to measure impact better around our human rights social justice advocacy work. So that was the question how do we get a better sense of impact around human rights and social justice in the work that we do? Well, anyway, it sort of wended, wended its way, and I won't bore you with the details, but the, the lack of capacity to think systemically was quite extraordinary. So I had a session three weeks ago in Geneva with a bunch who commissioned me to do this work. They're called Edmund Rice International, and they've got a presence on um, the UN. Mm. Um and I did a, a simple, simple exercise with them that Fiona would have loved. I just got them to map the system of influence of which they are a part. It took us it took them a morning and they were completely fascinated by what it revealed about them, their place in the system, points of leverage where they didn't have relationship and without relationship they couldn't do their work. And they thought that they were the people who were actually in charge. Of, of the social justice advocacy piece because they Edmund Rice International in Geneva with the presence on UN and it was a very simple exercise that revealed to them why they're not having the influence that they could have mm. Mm. so we're going to Dublin so in the end after two days of work and it, and I mean these are three elderly Christian brothers two of whom are Australian so it was a it was a, a tricky task because once again, they put the social justice advocacy piece into the technical box. So, the notion is so, you know, so even the community engagement piece goes into, well, this is how we engage with communities, but sort of technical box also. Mm-hmm. And it was only when they brought themselves fully into it, and I didn't talk about futures, I didn't actually use any big words, language. They'd been totally put off Theory U by one of their colleagues who sort of did a sort of a baffling brains exercise with them. I just gave them an experience of working systemically and building a systemic understanding and they said, well, we have to actually give our board this experience because they don't understand. We've just come to understand and they don't. What it means to partner for social justice advocacy work. So I'm I'm co- I'm meeting, chatting to them this afternoon. Mm. We're co-designing and co-facilitating two one-and-a-half-hour sessions at their board meeting in Dublin next month.
0: Fascinating. So So it's It's not, and it
1: wasn't, uh, and I didn't overload them with anything. mm. I simply gave them an experience of working together in an entirely different way and thinking Mm. together. It's, it's fantastic. I, I,
2: I love Megan's work and I just love the idea of giving people an experience. It's something else I've noticed recently, which is uh, people can also use method to control or to prevent um, experiences as well. And I, it's really interesting that, yeah, the words aren't important. And often when people do use the word, the right words, they've got the wrong intention. And I, sometimes it's just a... You know, oh, I'm very collaborative and I want to take assistance approach, but that means I can't talk to you today or I can't be involved in this because it's not the perfect method, blah, blah, blah. So mm. um, Megan's work, which just really it, it goes to the heart of well, what are we trying to achieve and how can you give people that experience to get there, uh, I find I find wonderful.
0: How, how, how much – I'm just picking up on that point, Fiona, in terms of the a time element to it. Have you noticed anything in terms of the amount of time people need in order to be able to um, fully engage with this? Do they is, is there a is there a component part of this? I think you hinted at it earlier, of preparing people before they come, but then also during the time when they're together, having time to not do the things which is sort of tasky. Do, do you know what I mean? Is is there a a flow in this that's that's just free, that's that's actually just letting it happen in whatever way it rolls out?
2: I think often I I work within time constraints. So um, someone is trying to do something differently, for example, with an organisation, but the most amount of time I can get is several hours for example with really senior staff and i have three hours to give them an experience and um you know generate some new insights and and get them going but i might be able to do that over several months or you know i I love events where there's at least a night in between for people it's amazing what sleep can do Mm. um for people just to have that almost think things sink in but i've also had uh processes i've been involved in where um more the capability building component so it wasn't about just giving it wasn't just about coming up with solutions it was actually how do you teach people to think differently and act differently and be able to um take that out into their world and and i was supporting some groups was actually over a two-year period and it was really at the end of two years where one of the participants rang me and she said okay i've just gone back through the first session and I finally get what you were saying, Mm -hmm. you know, and and she was really excited that it it, had hit a point in her life, but it was just a matter of almost you've got to go back out and live it again. Um, So I don't know. I I don't think time should be a barrier either. Like I'm not one to say, well, if you can't give me three days, then don't bother. Mm -hmm. I think I'll take whatever time I can get and try and create an experience of just, even if it's just a hint that gives people a sense that something else is out there they can learn about.
1: Yeah, I think that's true Fiona. I mean, this, this, uh, one of the people of the three at Edmund Rice, uh, had been with me in Zambia. So he had a strong sense and uh, persuaded the others that it would be a good idea to spend two days, but we simply said we were doing a learning debrief. From, from the research project, because it was important to integrate that into their strategy for the next two years. That was the only statement of purpose. Um, and my experience is that in an hour and a half, there's something about a, uh, an hour and a half period. If you can get three hours, that's awesome. Mm. But there's something you can give people in an hour and a half, an experience of something different, a taste, as you say. Hmm. Hmm so you don't have to have people willingly buying in is what i'm saying two of the three of them wouldn't have had the faintest clue and then actually one of them was probably quite resistant so for example theory U, you know mm. was a, would, would have been a barrier to him mm. but when i got up to the systemic thing and then i finally at the end showed them some of the slides around theory U and systems thinking and all of this you know and 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 all it did was crystallize for them the experience they'd had and they went Oh, this is this has actually shifted our our entire view of our work and how we need to partner mm. so I, I think it's I agree with Fiona time is not a barrier it's it's our intention so that how we go in and create the conditions and hold the space for them to have and 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 in, in, in ninety minutes you can have a pretty profound experience in my observation mm. And I think just to
2: stress a little bit further the point around not being self-righteous, and we're not trying to get people to believe in a method. And I think the um, that 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 is, you know, we don't expect people to have a really strong view on filmmaking before they go and enjoy a film, you know. So it's this. I think as as much as we can take away the barriers for people to actually come together and have these conversations, the better.
1: Yeah. But that's
0: it. I'm struggling for a question that is sort of forming in the back of my head and it's not quite there yet but it's something to do with resistance, Listen, help me out here. So. I'm sure you've encountered it <laughs> and in fact Meg you just say you know, one way we've encountered resistance is somebody's had a bad experience or been told of a bad experience or of a particular way of doing something in the past so then when you mention it in your session you immediately get the folded arms and the turn away type of attitude but I'm just wondering um, resistance at the Subjective level is one thing. Resistance at the institutional level is something a whole different ballgame. And I'm sure that's something that you encounter. And what 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 do you do in those situations? Do you just say okay, it's not it's not the right moment, or do you plough on because business has to happen? You know, you have to do what you need to do to pay the rent. Where, Where does it take you in that? context, you know, in terms of dealing with the challenges, not just the challenge of the complexity of the issues they're trying to deal with outside of their organizational frame, but also the ones that are oh terrible question. It's it's going nowhere.
2: Yeah, I'll throw it to
0: you. Just have just
2: a question and it's something that I'm dealing with in on a regular basis. And a lot of my work I realize perhaps unintentionally has turned into supporting those that wish to create change within an organization to sort of survive and persist in spite of resistance and so I think from a again from a systems point of view systems are very resilient and they will resist for a whole range of reasons, not least when there's anxiety in that system and and In the cases, fortunately, I think in the experiences I've been involved in it, it, part of it is about helping interpret the resistance, so, um, you know, and explaining, look, it's, you know, in one case, I think, you know, people's basically jobs were getting threatened because they were trying to do these things And, and just saying, look, this is actually a phase of the system responding to your efforts and we just need to get it from here to here even doing things like we can be very tactical around things like we teach things like how to pitch ideas, strategic communications and leveraging, like it's all well and good to come up with great solutions, but there's still, um, a lot of games to be played, unfortunately in order to get it through all sorts of channels. And so it's a real blend of the sort of, um, I guess maybe more the more idealistic and and um, transformative imaginings, and then the reality of how do you actually shepherd that through an existing organisation, and it's a it is a ongoing challenge. And I, I, I like I said, I feel like I devote a lot of my emotional and intellectual energy now to supporting people to survive that, which is not where I thought I would be. But I also feel really excited, and I feel like I'm sharing the win when they do get through. Mm.
0: It almost suggests that systems, be, old systems, become more resilient in times of crisis rather than less. That 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 they resist more about change in in a moment of pressure, and finding the little kernels of opportunity with individuals that might then need to link to other places, not their own place. This could be one of the sort of counterintuitive routes to success, if you like. Do <laughs> well, you
1: remember yeah. that, that old cliche that systems are set up to maintain the status quo? They're not set up to change. Mm. Mm. So organisational systems and big institutional arrangements are not set up to be responsive and, and to change. There's a lovely quote from Stuart Brand, uh, you know, his book, mm-hmm. The Clock of the now, where he talks about you need both slow and fast you need, you know, I'll, I'll send it to you because even having a conversation around that, um, as I have, um, uh, people find that really interesting because it's not one or the other. You're not asking for big institutions to suddenly become agile, flexible, flexible and responsive. That's not what they established to be or do. Mm-hmm. It's do you create and work with the pockets within it in such a way that they don't get compromised by the system but they don't also then get squashed by the system
2: and this also comes back to a point that i have i find really concerning is that um i guess our political system and a lot of advocacy and even i find a lot of scientists for example uh, assume that the only way to achieve change is through a burning platform and to generate a sense of crisis in order to Create change all that does is increase the anxiety in the current system mm. and increase the likelihood of resistance It's where I feel that transformative uh, Scenarios and an imagining alternative futures um, That takes the anxiety away and I think it actually creates room to potentially build a new system Um, without the old system sort of getting in the way or having that allergic reaction. Um, And so I, I really do feel like we have to find, and I think it needs to be more widely accepted, that the burning platform approach is not, for a lot of our complex challenges, it just isn't working. And it's not working. And we've seen it not work with climate change, with you know, water security, food security, poverty, so many things. The burning platform just reinforces an old system and I find that really worrying that we continue to try and to light things on fire instead of actually going, well, let's actually figure out how do we work together to imagine a better future
0: and let's actually um, create that system Mm. instead of just fighting the old one. So you've segued segued us into the last part of the question, I suppose. If we review it how might we approach transformational change for complex challenges in the future so let's look at that last bit you know what are your hopes thoughts aspirations around that question you know in terms of the the future aspect of it perhaps if you visualize it in the sense of your own stuff in the next five years where where would you like to be with this work where do you think it's taking you
1: I've
2: never been very good on having a life plan. <laughs> I also like following, I like just following my intuition on where things go when they need to go. But I think for me it, it is really about the, I think that the the idea of, and I, and I don't necessarily think it's new, I think it's maybe old, and actually I came across a quote, I sort of revisited Henry David Thoreau quote around, what a miracle it is that we can see through each other's eyes, for instance. And I and I think that idea of, um, you know, starting with empathy and recognising so many of the intangibles, you know, one of the things that we had in the Wayfinders Guide that came out of the workshop was this making the invisible visible. I just really hope that the work we're doing um, and, and we're focusing sort of, well, I guess, a lot of our work we're we're not focusing on today's leaders we're trying to focus on tomorrow's leaders but when they're in leadership positions in five years time um actually have the appetite and the understanding and are willing to champion and create the space for different types of future making Mm. um Mm. so that that's what i would love to see and i would love to have a part in that but um i've also um I think I, I say that in the sense that not for the sake of having a part in it but hopefully um you know it's something we can all be involved in yeah. and just yeah yeah uh, get into yeah if that makes sense i don't know if that makes sense
0: absolutely i, I in fact it it, it 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 um it mirrors a quote that i've actually got out for the end of this session <laughs> that I thought might be of interest to share. It's from Thomas Berry's book, The Great Work. And at the end of this book, he says, uh, As we begin to understand that our human identity exists with all the other modes of existence, and that constitutes the single universal community, the one story includes us all. We are everyone, cousins to one another every being is intimately present to and immediately influencing every other being um, i love that last bit you know this idea that this intimate presence and presence in the sense that we're capable of moving from where we were to a different form of understanding of our relationship with each other is perhaps the the, the, the greatest challenge that we face
1: Okay, and for me on that one, you know, going back to what we mean by relationship, it's Mm. relationship with everything. Mm. I'm not only talking about human relationships.
0: Mm.
1: It's relationships with all things.
0: That's it, yeah. One story includes us all.
1: Some little vision for the moment, well, it's not even... Something I'm working on with someone from the Presencing Institute, so who I co-facilitated the lab with. Mm. We've taken... And Paul, you know this. We've taken mm-hmm. the papal encyclical, mm-hmm. the C calling for an integral ecology, and we, we're designing a very practical program for Africa, and we're starting with a prototype in Zambia. Um, and it's not just intended for Catholics. It's actually mm-hmm. it's taking people on a long-term journey, well, a year-long journey, um, and helping them prototype Different ways of doing integral, eco- practicing an integral ecology in whatever their context might be. That. So that's my little, and, mm-hmm. and we're bringing the technical and the social together mm-hmm. so we've got the, the big te- technical pla- technology platforms from MIT mm-hmm. so we can reach a number of uh, um, dispersed communities at the same time because we've got people who are prepared to host hubs and have the technology to do so, and so we're doing a facilitated training piece for people who can lead these local labs. So we, yeah, they, they're little innovation labs, and there are three of them going at the same time, one around organisational transformation, one around transforming economic thinking, so economic thinking for the 21st century and the third one's around practicing an integral ecology and what that means so they're connected but distinct labs so that's what i'm marking yeah. and hopefully for those good legs that's what will occupy me for a, a considerable period of time
0: there's a great story to come on that i think mm. thank you thank you fiona thank you megan um i think we'll draw it at a to a conclusion, there, but it was a wonderful discussion. Thank you. And uh, stay on the line, and I'll just catch up with you afterwards. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was lovely to connect with you both, as always.
0: Yeah, isn't it special?
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, I really enjoyed it. And I think um, good luck with editing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not my strong point. <laughs> Well, there you have it uh, what a great way to start season three um, thank you Megan and, and uh, Fiona um, for what was in the end a, a conversation that actually went beyond the well beyond the hour um, there's another 45 minutes or so of discussion that we had following on from this but maybe that's another day um, thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed it and if you want to get back to us you guys, I said at the beginning get in touch and um, day to day in order to progress human consciousness. I suppose that's a way to finish this talk uh, today, to, to look at the ways in which we might move human consciousness towards a better spot. It's always good to start big. All right, thanks a lot. See you soon.